0: is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire. I'm a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement attorney and I am a native New Yorker. Welcome, welcome, welcome to season two of Terps in the City. I have with me today my very special guest, attorney Joe Bondi. As you may be aware, Terps in the City used to be a talk show on Facebook and then I transitioned the format to being a podcast. This podcast format allows me to touch base with all of my friends We're going to use New York as the backdrop for this season because I am moving back to New York. I will be in full snowbird fashion living between New York and Florida, and I get to hang out with some of my amazing, amazing friends. So one of my great friends from all these years being in cannabis is attorney Joe Bondi. Joe, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. I'm very excited to be here.
0: Well, you are guest number two, and the reason why is you're really close and dear to my heart. We've stayed in touch over all these years, keeping up with updates, keeping up with the children, having great meals out. I'll never forget the Brussels sprouts and veggie burgers at your favorite spot. And there's so much going on in New York right now. So I felt that I needed to be there to take part in all this activity, and I get a chance to hang out with amazing, amazing activists like yourself. So let's catch up after a couple of years of activity. We can start with Marta, if you want. How how do you feel about what's going on with the adult use legalization in New York?
1: Sure. Well, I'll start by saying welcome back home to the the worldwide epicenter of cannabis. Thank you. And of course, like be there, no doubt. New York consumes more cannabis than any other city in the world. I think Karachi, Pakistan is number two, right? New Delhi is number three. LA is like four and Chicago is five. So welcome back. And we really, and we talk about the years together, we've built a movement, right? Not so much us, everyone's built a movement. We've been part of this sea change in the law and this sea change in the view towards cannabis culminating in the day where we have, I I did this statistic, I've been studying, I'm really into cannabis metrics. We're both, I think, canon nerds. It's the nature of being attorneys in this space. But we employ more people, legal cannabis workers in the U.S. today than we have insurance agents, than there are people in the Navy, than we have people in the Air Force, And we have people in the Marine Corps. There are more people in the Army, right? There's 430,000 people who are working in the legal cannabis space today. There are more people in that space than there are hairstylists, cosmetologists, and uh, barbers in the United States put together. And in a country of machinists, there are more people working in the legal cannabis industry than in the machinist industry, more machine, more, more people. So New York being the epicenter of all of this, and it's become on court with what we call the marijuana regulation taxation act, which became effective last March 31st. And that kind of did a few things, right? It, It legalized possession of up to three ounces of cannabis by an individual in public smoking it on the street, anywhere you can consume tobacco, which, of course, is a remarkable change from what we had in, in New York for many years. And also to implement a scheme wherein you could conceivably home grow, although those rules are yet to really become effective. And you could also gift cannabis immediately to people for no compensation. And that created this kind of ripe market, if you will. And, of course, uh, a market that's filled with opportunists who are not quite gifting, but created this gray zone. While at the same time, we're waiting for our licensing regime to come into full effect. I happen to think the law is fantastic, as written and that we've kind of learned from the, the left, if you will, lessons learned from the left coast. It's a vibrant social equity law. There's an aspirational goal of 50% of those licenses going to people who are social equity applicants. We already have transitioned our hemp farmers in New York, who are really, by definition, distressed. Farmers, right? Given the the state of hemp the past couple of years and yeah, with the pandemic particularly, into being able to, and we got two licenses for clients in my office, conditional THC licenses for hemp farmers. So we're doing that. We have a first round of uh, licenses for retail stores that are earmarked to go to what we call criminal justice encounter applicants, and those are people who have a conviction or an arrest involving cannabis in the state of New York, or the family members of these people who've been aggrieved, of course by that war on drugs. So, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity. It's a very exciting time. There are some funds that are earmarked for social equity applicants to be able to take advantage of. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the rollout in the, in the coming months and, and years.
0: I, I love the fact that you, like Marta, as written, you think it's a great piece of legislation. I agree with you. There are some people who have concerns and and there are people who you know don't don't really think that it it really captures the full social equity you indicated that the first round hemp licenses you had two clients who who were qualified and I love how you describe them as distressed farmers because we know the hemp industry has been really up and down or down and down as far as the managing the supply and demand and and can you really be profitable if you're not a, a fully vo- vertically integrated brand that has done all the marketing to, to make sure that your brand is recognizable? So I, I completely agree with that, that these are distressed farmers. I myself, am a F, I'm a hemp farmer. I farmed in four states. I currently still have a farm in the state of Florida. So I really like that pivot. Do you think that will take hold in other states as far as the hemp farmers being transitioned into the adult-use cannabis space.
1: I hope so. I think it's really sage. But you raise this really amazing, let's get back into the Canada nerd like weeds thing, right? Because we yeah. talk about COVID and distressed farmers and can you really be profitable if you're not vertical, right? Right. And I, I submit to you that you'll be more profitable if you're not vertical. And I'll give you okay. as an example, any industry you can think of where we went from craft to industry. I'll give you a couple examples. Pins in the 19th century were made in the early in the 18th century you had them being made by craftspeople but then they started to be made on an assembly line and the pin was broken into 18 different component actions to create one pin. By having one person specialize in each aspect of pin production the number of pins produced uh, increased by 240 fold. And of course, I get this data as Adam Smith. I mean, it's the hand of Adam Smith. I'm not making this stuff up. But you think about that as applied to cannabis with the specialization of all of these job functions, which is not verticalization, right? That's essentially, I do rote task A and this person does rote task B and we're specialists at either doing tissue culture or irrigation or doing a particular part of a build or of a harvest or whatever it may be, right? Typing, that specialization will increase the production of cannabis dramatically. And my other example for you is, and I I get technical, right, is like Joseph Stalin's view on watches where we went from the craftsperson, made watches one of a kind, Switzerland, we still see that today at at the bespoke end of the watch, to the idea of taking component parts and having them outsourced and then put together under one roof by a worker, not a craftsman. That led to everyone having a watch. And we're doing exactly the same thing with cannabis. So as we go from craft to industry, we're also going from niche, right? Which is what you might call the black market or the traditional yeah. market or the legacy market. You're going from niche and then you see with hemp it becoming a nutraceutical or a wellness crop, but still That's niche, right? right? Special soaps and special tinctures. But as you go mainstream, you go towards what? And, and you're an agricultural war, You go towards rice and corn, yes? Absolutely. When you go from like niche to iceberg lettuce, What happens to the prices? They plummet. And when you go from craft in a a newly legalized industry that's expanding exponentially into industry, what happens? There's so much cannabis around that at some point the prices plummet and the expectations, I think, of the moms and pops, right, the first round entrepreneurs that we know, right, the people we know who started are really in a difficult position compared to their, their later round competitors.
0: So what, what about, we talked about the price quality based on the efficiency that you gain by having people be niche and really focus on the area they're an expert in. And I've always been an advocate when it comes to cannabis for having a horizontal market, not vertically integrated to give group, especially uh, smaller players, an opportunity to really perfect what they're good at. But is there a, an argument about quality when it comes to quality with regards to treating cannabis like, the, the cannabis supply chain like components of a whole, as opposed to allowing for that control or, or tracking of the chain of custody within a single enterprise. How do do you think it affects quality if we do it on the more assembly line, as opposed to old school craft, I do everything approach to production of cannabis? Well,
1: this is a fascinating question because I think out of the ashes industry will rise again, the, the craft, right? And you think about it, if we were in some medieval tavern, we'd be eating some special bowls that had been made for us by hand and clothes that had been made for us. We'd have special swords. And then if it was 70 years ago, you'd be eating a TV dinner or something like that. And now you can go back and get a, a craft beer today where we've gone from, as I said, craft to industry and I think back to craft again. But the little caveat is when you drink a craft beer today, it's... You look at the label almost always a subsidiary of a big beer house, a big industrial complex. So I feel as though with cannabis, craft is exceptionally important because it's, a, it's an artisan product. I mean, the, yes. the culture of it is that it's artisanal. The hashishin, the person who makes the temple balls, the people who grow from seed all the way through lovingly to harvest and then to sale, who know exactly when to, to, to harvest those ripe buds. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the the people that make the cranberry pies in the small roadsides today. And I think there's an exceptional place for craft, but you'll also see in the coming years a lot of these marijuana companies portraying things as craft, quote unquote, that maybe are not so. And once you get to federal legalization and you can patent plants and you start to see large agricultural companies come in and try to control or at least unveil the genetics they already control, we could say, then you really start to think about what's happening. You get towards the genericization of cannabis, just like you would with maybe potato varieties or banana varieties, of course. So instead of those heirloom varieties that, that, it, that can be preserved for future generations. So there's a critically important role for the preservation of these genetic strains and uh, for seed libraries, or even, I guess today, another alternative is to keep genetics in stasis and stasis in a tissue culture of some sort, stabilize it. But I believe there's always an exceptionally important role, and particularly so with this plant, for heirloom varieties and for craft.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's unrecognized work of the legacy uh, uh, operators, the legacy industry that they have, not only have they pre- preserved genetics, but they all, they have facilitated biodiversity as well with their reading techniques. So I'm really glad that you you raised that issue. And just like other creations or inventions or craft consumables, people are willing to pay a a premium for something that is craft. If you get that one-of-a-kind watch, you're not going to pay the same amount that you pay for a Timex for it. You expect to pay a premium. So that may be something that we see economically in our industry where there is going to be the cookie cutter, whether it's strains or a cookie cutter presentation, And then you'll have something very unique that you'll be willing to, to pay. Another point that you had brought up earlier was, and I want to talk about the federal legalization point that you just made, but let's go back to talking about the justice involved designation in New York. and. That has been a little controversial. My, my reading of the draft regulations indicate that, that it turns on the conviction specifically and not on the arrest. And, and there's some feedback on that, the requirement that they have a some type of business enterprise that has been profitable for two years, at least a 10% ownership. Any thoughts on those criteria for the justice-involved applicant who, who will get go at a, at a retail license in the, the current regulations? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I I have this observational perch. I I feel it's a superior observational perch through the years of representing a number of very high-scale cannabis defendants, but they're principally in federal court. I've represented cultivators that the DEA has labeled the most sophisticated cultivators they've seen. I've represented people that have done mandatory minimum prison sentences in federal court and who've been damaged by the war on drugs and the cannabis laws particularly uh, dramatically, some of whom have lost their homes, they've all lost jobs, many have lost parts of their family, and none of them qualify under the draft regulations as a criminal justice encounter applicant because it's a federal conviction, not a state conviction. And so, uh, and I give you another example, anyone who's Arrested in the marijuana economy in a different state, Kansas, Nebraska, anywhere with cannabis en route back to New York, who has a family in New York, who's impacted in New York. And those people are also excluded from this first round prioritization. And so I think that that label criminal justice encounter may be a little narrow in terms of what, it's, what, it, what it is defined as. There's a public comment period that ends in the 31st, and I, I will be making a public comment to this effect. Because I do think that it, the, the definition should be expanded, number one. And then number two, timing is, is important, and we're in a pandemic. Many people have lost their jobs. Many businesses have gone under. Many people are unemployed. Many people had poor years. Many entrepreneurs didn't turn a profit. And I don't think that that profit is the sine qua non. That's not its my Latin, right? That's like not the factor that should drive this consideration. Perhaps trying to own a business, perhaps trying to demonstrate some compliance with those requirements, but not turning a profit. And even that's right. questionable. I mean, even even the essence of that. Do you necessarily need to do that if what you're talking about in most of these cases? Because we're talking about what at most 200 licenses in a state of 20-some odd million people.
0: Of course.
1: That's the epicenter that's of marijuana.
0: If of this me.
1: is done correctly, you're going to be cherry picking among people, right? who have been dramatically impacted by the marijuana laws, but also who have dramatic anchors and experience in marijuana in some aspect of it, right? That's what's going to make this sing, is that the most qualified, quote, legacy people, so to speak, and that's what they'll be, will be allowed to get precedence in those licenses. So how do you do that? How do you create this crop of the most qualified New Yorkers if you're excluding from the game some of the most, indeed in my experiences a criminal lawyer for 27 years, right, a practice I still maintain by. How do you do that if you exclude these people
0: from the market? Yeah, I agree with you. I think there definitely needs to be a a redefining of what that justice-involved category looks like. I, I think arrests should count. I think people who have been transporters who might've been captured out of state. I agree with you with regards to federal charges in addition to the state charges, because that's really where the control substance exists for the most part is um, on the federal side of things, especially when we're talking about distribution and bulk distribution. So I I agree with you and I think there's opportunity to work on on the language. Are you confident that with the public comment period, I know you're submitting the groups that I work with in the legacy industry, they're, they're definitely going to be submitting public comment other uh, partner groups that I've spoken to, they're going to be submitting public comments. So are you optimistic about this af- post-public comment, then the regulators making adjustments to accommodate the fact that they may be missing the, the, the most significantly impacted people by the war on drugs?
1: Well, I, I feel as though what we are saying, and particularly since it's, it's a multiplicity of voices, will be heard and resonate, and we're correct. We're not wrong. It's a matter of what you then do with that. Because if you recast the regulations, obviously they'll go back to a public comment period. There'll be another delay, one could say, in these first rounds of, of licenses, the criminal justice and counter licenses being issued. The state's already taken the position that those would be the first licenses to be issued. And so what happens with the remaining classes of licenses? where the applications are still yet to be released for public comment, right? It could delay that a little bit as well, but for for good reason. And the thing about building the cannabis economy and industry in New York, the structure of it, is that you have to do it right. And you can't just rush into it, right? A house built without a foundation doesn't stand. That's that Harry song, right? We need to build, and we've been building it so strong in New York. It doesn't impact the movement except favorably to get this right by waiting a couple more months. It does impact, I note, the average applicant who's chomping at the bit to get a license and earnest, and I see this with a lot of people who came to us, my office, as social equity applicants, really powerful applicants. But when the criminal justice encounter around the the tentative regs were made public, you see a lot of those people trying to see if they can fit into that peg and take their their square peg and put it in that slightly different hole and sure. we counsel people against that, but you can see the, the enthusiasm about it. And the other thing about those licenses, I think it's unfair is this covered in the times you see it on all the news channels, a lot of young people who've been caught maybe with a joint or consuming cannabis or a nominal impact with the criminal justice system being of the mind that they'll get one of these licenses. And I just don't, don't think that's realistic. But it does beg the question about what if it was legal like lettuce? I mean, would it matter so much? Would the sky fall if there was a mechanism to take the average low skill legacy person selling a little weed and give them an opportunity to be a micro seller of cannabis somewhere so they could set up a, a card table in Washington Square Park and whatever it is they're doing, they're out in a backpack and sell it to their friends for for something that's not just gifting. I mean, would the sky really fall? Would that really harm the legacy market? Doesn't that kind of aid us in collecting revenue and, and, and transitioning these young people into the legitimate economy who'd otherwise be on the periphery and perhaps remain in the black market and never then be able to take advantage of legal cannabis because they'd never be able to get together enough resources or capital to enter the stream of commerce? Just begs well, the question.
0: No, I, I like how you reimagine what a, a free and open market could look like, what the engagement of the, what you've called low skilled, and you were talking about corner people, people who've been distributing cannabis for a long time, and allow them to do what they do best in a way that they're uh, free from harassment over, over-enforced and they get it and, and the consumer gets to choose. And that's the beauty of what you're describing is it? it's always been about supply and demand. And if you allow for, without, without limits for this distribution to happen, of course, with safe product, but this distribution to happen, the consumers are going to choose who stays and who goes. And I think that's a great fear, but I also think That is the answer for allowing people to have this, whether you call it licensure or or permit, et cetera, to create their own space for distribution and let the consumers choose from one safe product and another safe product. Between one safe product and another safe product in a true free and open economy.
1: This is a, I agree. We've reached this kind of like compelling dichotomy. We've hung ourselves on our own petard of success, I'll call it. Back when you and I were younger in the day, we thought about marijuana being legal probably like, if marijuana is really legal, I can go buy it anywhere. Right? Right. I can buy it anywhere, I can give it to people, I can sell it, I could chop it up and put it in food, I could smoke it if I want, or bake a cake. I can bring it anywhere I want. I'm not putting myself on a list to purchase it. I don't have to go through a metal detector, I don't buy it through a plexiglass shield. Right? I don't have to be in certain locales. It really was the vision of the Tetley's Weed Bag or legal-like lettuce. And if we were pirates, because back in the day, everyone was a pirate if you were involved in this. And, then yep. you were, right? and now we're, everyone's in the Navy. They want to go join the Navy. It's more fun right. to be a pirate in certain respects. You'd be throwing bales of weed at everybody and happy yo-ho-ho that the world could have kids. Right. Then you saw a little bit of limited success. And it's so interesting because that medical cannabis market with Dennis Perone is really critical in, 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 in giving cannabis to terminally ill people, but also in framing cannabis as something that can aid people who deserve it. And then allowing the shifting of that frame towards where we are today, right? Both mainstream medical for a variety of, of applications and legalization. But without that, you might not really kind of had that. And it's just really amazing to see that with that model, came this notion of now we have these rules and they have to be abided by and it really makes sense right marijuana should not be for children you don't drive right. them are, are, are right there are rails on
0: right
1: but then we trend from those rails into this notion of the industry and for example some operators not wanting to have a free economy or wanting to crush certain entrants into the market or complaining about the issuance of additional licenses right then you see this whole Field. And in fact, I'm lecturing on this subject for Normals National Legal Committee in Aspen in a couple of weeks on all the compendium of woe, all the things that lawyers and, and people in the cannabis industry are doing to get themselves in trouble criminally. A variety of obvious things, right? You see the omissions and the material misstatements, the fraud. Yeah. The- so, the-
0: so much of it. So the much of it.
1: of it right so how do you
0: contract so much of it
1: how do you combat that if and on a certain level if you give so much value to each of these licenses you create that incentive right if you make it so hard a hurdle for the legacy operator to enter the market you just set them up to lie on the jurat on the application right're to omit an important fact like how do we then address all of these things oh we get the legacy operator to, to, to say something incriminating that's not privileged that can be used against them there are a number of things that we've never addressed before, because this is a like a blossoming and a, and a really forward-moving industry, moving quickly. And you're addressing the transition of people from the criminal justice encounter world, right, where they have a variety of rights and considerations, and many of those people still have things to, to protect, interests to protect. How do we do all that? And how do we do all that when we're faced with federal federal illegality at the same time?
0: It makes it difficult for the legacy operators to get involved. They want to do the right thing. They want to participate. They feel like they have built the industry, but there are these barriers. And with their disclosures, there's always a risk. And working with this, this community, this strong, very intelligent community, it's very hard to gain trust as far as like, no, I'm here to help you. I believe that you should have a right to be a part of this industry because you built this industry. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I love your point about pirates. I was interviewed by cannabis and tech magazine, and I'm going to be speaking at the cannabis science conference about cannabis and trade. And that's exactly where I want to start is like looking at, we romanticize pirates. However, we're, we're criminalizing and defaming the smugglers who protected genetics, who created biodiversity, who introduced many to the plant. So. I just think that's a really good point. Like uh, Halloween, we see so many people dressed up as pirates. But when it comes to the cannabis industry, we want to still have this ridiculous stigma. Even myself, like I'm, I'm Jamaican. I'm part of the Jamaican community, part of the Jamaican diaspora. And fortunately, I've been able to build relationships with the Cannabis Licensing Authority in Jamaica. And I'm seeing so much change in Jamaica. But I'm a part of a diaspora group where I was threatened to be kicked out of a WhatsApp Group on Jamaica diaspora because I mentioned cannabis. And if I continued to mention cannabis, I would be kicked out of the group. And I was like, that makes absolutely no sense. Jamaica's known and has been known for good ganja, good cannabis. It's part of our economy. When you go to the, if you look at what the strategies for the Minister of Tourism, the ministers of of agriculture in jamaica it's part of their overall strategy as well as the prime minister's office but in the diaspora in a in a whatsapp group i was actually kicked out of it because i mentioned cannabis because there's a perception that it's illegal and and, and illicit it it's it just stuns me that there's still so much stigma but you've done a lot of work to counter that type of stigma to forward legislation and i i i can't have you on the show without really showing you appreciation for your work on um, the federal lawsuit against uh, Jeff Sessions, as well as the Department of Justice. So let's, there's a lot of new people. The, the beauty of being cannabis legalizers and cannabis activism is that we've created a space for so many people to come out of the cannabis closet again, and now join us as soldiers, join us as activists. But a lot of them don't know the history. So let's talk a little bit about that step that you and your, your, your plaintiffs took with regards to challenging the US government to legalize a cannabis at a federal level through the judicial process.
1: That was an important case. Twenty eighteen, what was called the federal cannabis lawsuit was brought by a group of plaintiffs, Marvin Washington, the former Pro Football player, wonderful guy. Cannabis Cultural Association, a not for profit based here in New York City. I happen to be on the board of, and the vice president of, a woman named Alexis Bortel, who is a well-known advocate at this point in her family, a young boy from Georgia and his parents, and a veteran named Jose Ballen, who of course, and the plaintiffs brought a claim against Congress in the United States through pro bono lawyers led by Michael Hiller and accompanied by his partner Lauren Rudick, and in the early stages by my dear friend David Holland, and by me. And we argued that the Controlled Substances Act was unconstitutional for a variety of reasons, from uh, depriving people of the right to take a life-saving medicine to really being a violation of the Equal Protection Clause and that the Controlled Substances Act had been enacted for a a racist purpose. We lost in the district court. The judge made an important finding that medical cannabis certainly helps people. Cannabis was was beyond cavil that it had a medical application, and that was a first. In the Second Circuit, we lost, but the court indicated that they would hold the mandate, which means hold their judgment back, to allow us to pursue a descheduling petition with the DEA. We argued that we needed to have an opportunity to bring a declaratory judgment uh, in the Southern District of New York against the DEA, because in a DC case, a DC Circuit, Washington case, and there's Americans for Safe Access, actually. The circuit had held that the DEA did not have the power to merely deschedule, but could reschedule. And there was that precedent that we were concerned we'd be up against. The circuit denied us that leave. We then went to the Supreme Court. We were denied certiorari. But in terms of building a movement, this is what this this was. We filled courtrooms with people. We connected people in support. We raised awareness. And in the Supreme Court of the United States, I think we had 14 or 13 friend of the court, what they call amicus briefs that had been filed by various entities. Glass Prisoner Project was one of them. Normal was one of them. A group of people from the House of Representatives, Earl Blumenauer from Oregon, another one. We had some exceptional amici, but we were denied to serve. So that's the case. But again, you get your relief in, in the legislature. It was the legislature that ended up taking marijuana away from us, making all of these things illegal, scheduling these drugs, creating these mandatory minima. And it's not really executive order that's going to change that. So we raised awareness and brought a a pivotally important case and allowed everybody to come together and to build a community of voices that, that to this day is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But we need to continue to, if you believe in federal cannabis legalization, the mantra is this support candidates that share your values, go out even if it's a few bucks and donate on Act Blue, which is generally where you'll find these people. Speak up, speak out, get the message out, persuade people who are around you that might not be registered to vote or that might be registered, but don't vote. Persuade them to go out and do it and to vote for those candidates. If we do, we will change the world.
0: Yeah, I think that's a perfect demonstration of how to create a a movement using your your profession and your skill skill set and your strength, and I think all the activists that come together in the cannabis industry, we have something special to control. And, and some, a lot of us use our work to to make change. I remember one of the hearings for that case was on Valentine's Day, and they, it was called Green Heart Day across our industry, Green Heart Day, and people were just tuned in for that um, at, tuned in for that that hearing date. So it's it was amazing part of history. A part of cannabis history to be a part of and i hope i know there's some cannabis museums that are in, in place now and i, I really want to make sure that we give the the proper recognition and honor to everyone who was involved in that particular case that almost made it to to the supreme court yeah. so now no, i want mean, oh, to
1: shout out for a second on this issue of cannabis museums because it's little known there's a digital archive of all normal materials from 1970 forward, available at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. In fact, if you check my Twitter feed, at Joseph A. Bondi, it's somewhere in there, but UMass Amherst, they also have a paper archive. And I'm traveling up there in late June with members of, I co-chair the Normal Board of Directors, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, along with Professor Beverly Moran, a tax professor emeritus from Vanderbilt Law School. And we're traveling to the Lester Grinspoon Symposium, along with our Reciprocal Mentors. We have a Reciprocal Mentoring Program as part of our committee. Many of those members actually, people like Marvin Washington and Leo Water and Imani Dawson, Shalice Rogers. We've got a really remarkable committee of people, Kareem Burr. But we're gonna travel on up and take a look at the paper archive, because I think it's so important for us to understand the movement. And you raised the point of museums I also think it's important for us to begin to get digitized the memories that people have. You see people who've been with this movement for 50 years or 60. I was eating in a restaurant in New York the other day, and someone told me about being busted with weed when they were living above Peter, Paul, and Mary in the 1960s. But there's so much context to that history, good and bad, that will be lost if we don't start to think about how to archive it the right way. So that, I think, is another frontier for us and something that we can, as attorneys, probably have some responsibility to be stewards of
0: that i think i I agree and please count me in. i was going to ask the question how can i support your efforts how can we support your efforts and i think that's exactly it let's make sure that we are archiving and and giving proper respect to all the parts of the movement all the sensory at related to this movement so that future generations understand how how far we've come and my my last question is i'm asking every guest this season if there's one person that you could be introduced to or that you could meet that would forward that would move your work forward, who would that be? If anyone on the planet that you would like to be introduced to and meet and be able to have a conversation and and join arms and work with, who would that individual be?
1: If they were sincere in their in their wish to move the movement forward? Who do Correct. I think
0: with good intentions?
1: I can't, I it would be hard to give you one, but I, the people that we come to, I, I think of Jay Z and Barack Obama.
0: Excellent.
1: That's what I think Jay-Z. of. I think of people who have a platform that is, that is interplanetary, who have the resources, who have the, the insight and the experience and the understanding and who have the ability to influence so many people to make a difference.
0: Uh, I think right. those are excellent choices. And I want to use this platform to get people as close to the people they want to meet as possible. So it is my wish and desire that we, through the process of being a, a global community, that someone who knows somebody will make that connection. And then we can review maybe next season or or even publicly how those that network of people who are cannabis activists or even in their celebrity have made a change in in, in the work that we do. So. I I just thank you so much. I want to make sure people can get in touch with you and support your work. What's the best way to get in touch with you, Joe?
1: You can hit me, the website, josephabondi.com. You can find me by, my my email is jab at josephabondi.com. You can follow me on Twitter at josephabondi and find me pretty readily. I'm here.
0: I, I can testify, uh, Pun intended, I can testify that he is very accessible and and so committed to this work. And I'm very fortunate to call Joe Bondi a friend. I just want to thank you all for tuning in to Terps in the City. We're going to continue to have these discussions and and further the the dialogue and further the work around cannabis legalization and and really honoring the plant and honoring all levels of our industry, those who've been doing it for decades and without recognition and and in fear of of harm and, and loss of freedom. So thanks for tuning in. There are sponsorship opportunities. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, feel free to get in touch with me at SMP Esquire. That's S-M-P Esquire at Outlook.com. And I look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Have a wonderful day.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pot Moms Podcast. I started the Pot Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.